views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Your doctoral thesis was on the origins of the universe, right? First one. Hey, is this the new kid? Who are you calling kids, Spartacus? Ooh, God, I like him. You would. I have something to show you. Holy crap. You actually built it? What exactly did we build? A chaotic inflation device. It will recreate the origin singularity in this observable containment field. The Big Bang. Supercritical ignition will take place 24 hours after we start the device. And if it works, it will show us the first moments of the universe. And potentially rewrite every cosmological theory we know. Uh, I don't mean to be a wet blanket, but won't that blow up the planet? Well, we didn't think of that. Good thing you're here, Carter. But seriously, this thing's going to pump out a ton of Hawking radiation. And then it's going to go supernova. So please tell me you have a plan. You, you can just shut it off, right? Well, actually, no. Once induction is started, it's essentially a runaway cyclotron bomb. That's a bad plan. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, July 12, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the 519-661-3600 is always the number you can call to reach us on the air if you want to join us in our conversation. As Robert and I do something rather unusual today in terms of, uh, it's almost hard to pick what the theme is, seems a bit like God comes up in all of these uh, quarters, even though they talk about different subjects. We're going to be talking about the God particle, or the so-called God particle, that was apparently confirmed in experiments at CERN last week. We're also going to be talking about God the concept itself and how scientists may look at it and some of the interesting interpretations that they put to it. And then we'll be talking about God and gambling as Robert puts a whole new twist to the phrase, God does not play dice. And we'll also be talking about the whole emphasis on certainty that people seem to place on things. Hopefully we can get to all these subjects, Robert. Because uh, if anything, I think we might start off confusing the listeners with all of this stuff about the so-called God particle. Well, I'm confused it? already. Okay, well, <laughs> you're starting off on the right foot then. No, actually, I mean, I have read a little bit about the Higgs boson uh, particle, mm-hmm. and uh, just know a smattering of it. That's about it. But I'm, gl- I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about it. Well, I've, I've ac- I actually read the book, The God Particle, back when it came out in 1993, and I'll be talking about that a little later if I can get to it. Did you know that but, it wasn't originally called The God Particle? Um, I'm going to get into that whole story. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> Um, But let's start off with just what we've been told in the basic media, and I've sort of gleaned out what I thought were the essentials from various articles that I've seen. Starting with the London Free Press, July 5th, which of course is the day that they announced the big breakthrough, and that's the headline, bang, a big breakthrough, it reads. Newfound subatomic particle confirms 48-year-old finding. And out of Geneva, they report that scientists at Europe's CERN Research Center have found a new subatomic particle a basic building block of the universe which appears to be the boson imagined and named half a century ago by theoretical physicist Peter Higgs. Higgs, now 83, from Edinburgh University in Scotland, was among six theorists who in the early 1960s proposed the existence of a mechanism by which matter in the universe gained mass. 
It's funny, I always think of matter as being math, and that's an interesting statement in itself. He and some of the others were at CERN to welcome news of what, to the embarrassment of many scientists, some commentators have labeled the God particle for its role in turning the Big Bang into an ordered universe. Without the Higgs boson, the universe would have remained a formless soup of particles shooting around at the speed of light, the theory goes. So that's from that, and they say, so, uh, and why is it called, called the God particle, asks the National Post on the day before, on July 4th, and this, is, was, this was their answer. Quote, like God, it is everywhere, but hard to find, goes the quip. In fact, the origin of the name is rather less poetic. It comes from the title of a book by Nobel physicist Leon Laterman, whose draft title was The GD Particle, to describe the frustrations of trying to nail the Higgs. The title was cut back to the God particle by his publishers, apparently fearful that the word damn in there could be offensive. And another Post article on July 3rd suggests simply that it has been called the God particle, quote, because it may bring mass and order to the universe. And that's what people perceive as being a God-like attribute, I guess. The Higgs particle's presumed power to confirm mass seems to endow it with the power of creation itself, which helped lead to its god particle nickname. Many physicists loathe the term, fretting that it makes their discipline seem self-aggrandizing. So what's the Higgs field, asks the Post in its Q&A column on the day before the CERN experiment. They say the Higgs field is everywhere in space, or so scientists believe. Think of the Higgs field as oil, and everything that passes through it is slowed down. Higgs bosons stick to the particles of matter, dragging on them and giving them mass. Why is it important, they ask? The origin of mass, meaning the resistance of an object to being moved, has been fiercely debated for decades. Finding the Higgs boson would vindicate the so-called standard model of physics, a theory that developed in the early 1970s which says the universe is made from 12 particles that provide the building blocks of all matter. Will this change my life, they ask. Not in the slightest, they answer. If the Higgs boson exists, it means that some very clever physicists 50 years ago came up with a theory, and now they have proved, been proved right. If it exists, then it will add to the sum of human knowledge. Now, in another article from the Free Press on July 2nd... Now, before you get to that, Bob, sure. see, I'm already confused, because there are, I know. here's the physicist talking about defining mass as the resistance to being moved, and I thought that was the definition of inertia. Yes. Not mass. I, 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 there's a lot of misinformation in all of this. Yeah. And I'm going to try and you, you, to get down to the scientists eventually who are okay. actually talking. <laughs> but this is what you're getting out of the paper. And in another article from the Free Press on July 2nd, we were informed that the Higgs, both Field and Boson, could come in various forms, specialists say. And although one type may have been seen, it may yet take time to t determine exactly which one it is. Why is it called a Boson? Because the elementary particles, the building blocks of the cosmos, come in two types, bosons and pheromones. Oh, I thought you were going to say bosons. <laughs> <laughs> you were all bosons on this bus, Robert. <laughs> and the Higgs has been assigned to the first, okay? So physicists say the particle is like a wave from what would, other be, from what would be the otherwise invisible Higgs field and would provide prime evidence that un the underlying force is there. Now, on the day of the official announcement of the confirmation of the Higgs boson, July 5th, the National Post then reported that, quote, Stephen Hawking, the renowned physicist, said Professor Higgs deserved a Nobel Prize for his work, but admitted the discovery of the new particle had come at a cost. 
I had a bet with Gordon Kane of Michigan University that the Higgs particle wouldn't be found. He, get, he believes in gambling? Yeah. <laughs> That's why I thought th- these themes run throughout. You wouldn't believe. It seems I've just lost $100, he said. Scientists see confirmation of Professor Higgs' theory as accelerating investigations into the still unexplained dark matter that they believe pervades the universe and into the possibility of a fourth or more dimensions or of parallel universes. Now we're getting Star Trekky. It may help in resolving contradictions between their model of how the world works at the subatomic level and Einstein's theory of gravity. Now here I thought was an important part, quite in contradiction to the earlier claim that this won't affect our lives in the slightest. And they report, quote, there was silence as the CERN Institute's Joe Incandela gave a complex explanation of his team's work before proclaiming, we have observed a new boson. The discovery is so fundamental to the laws of nature, Mr. Incandela said. It could spawn a new era of technology and development, just as Newton's law of gravity led to basic equations of mechanics that made the Industrial Revolution possible. This is so far out of limb, he says, I have no idea where it will be applied. We're talking about something we have no idea what the implications are and may not be directly applied for centuries, end quote. So I'm thinking, okay, oh darn, so I guess it won't affect our lives after all today or any, you know, anytime soon before Christmas, I guess, eh, Robert? <laughs> so we'll have to wait a little while longer for our subspace communicators, I guess, which might be one of the first things they'll invent. Now, you know... In his book, The God Particle, uh, and it's subtitled, If the Universe is the Answer, What is the Question? (laughs) And that's author uh, Leo Laterman. By the way, it's written very comically. He's put a lot of comedy into the book to make it readable for the average person, too. And under the heading, uh, A Digression on Nothing, and this was written in 1993, and you know what we always talk about, the non-existence issue. He writes... The vacuum state consists of those regions of the universe where all matter has been removed and no energy or momentum exists. It is, quote-unquote, nothing at all. The sad part of the story is that the pristine absoluteness of the vacuum state as a concept has been so polluted by 20th century theorists that it is vastly more complicated than the discarded 19th century ether. (laughs) What replaces the ether is the Higgs field whose full dimensions we do not yet know. Remember, this was written in 1993. To do its job, there must exist, and experiments must reveal, at least one Higgs particle, electrically neutral. This may be only the tip of the iceberg. A zoo of Higgs boson quanta may be needed to completely (coughs) describe the new ether. Clearly, there are new forces here and new processes. We can summarize the little we know. At least some of the particles that represent the Higgs ether must have zero spin, must be intimately and mysteriously connected to mass, and must manifest themselves at temperatures equivalent to an energy of less than one teravolt. There is controversy also about the Higgs structure. One school says it's a fundamental particle. Another idea is that it's composed of new quark-like objects, which could eventually be seen in the laboratory. A third camp is intrigued by the huge mass of the top quark and believes that Higgs is is a bound state of top and anti-top. Only data will tell. Meanwhile, it's a miracle that we can see the stars at all. The new ether is then a reference frame for energy. In this case, potential energy. But Higgs alone does not explain the other debris and theoretical garbage that is dumped into the vacuum state. 
One longs for a new Einstein who will, in a flash of insight, give us back our lovely nothingness. <laughs> so Higgs is great, he says. Why then hasn't it been universally embraced? Peter Higgs, who loaned his name to the concept, not willingly, works on other things. Veltman, one of the Higgs architects, calls it a rug under which we sweep our ignorance. Glasshow is less kind, calling it a toilet in which we flush away the inconsistencies of our present theories. And the other overriding objection is that there isn't a single shred of experimental evidence. Prove Higgs exists? Just find the particle. Now, of course, Robert, that's exactly what they think they did mm -hmm. last week, many years later. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting. These last comments I wanted to get from Stephen Hawking himself, who's speaking from a brief history of time. And this is from the reader's companion to that book. And had a lot of interesting commentaries from various... Um, scientists, especially when you get now to the beginning of what we call the beginning of time, quote, the beginning of creation, and things that are, you know, why they call it the God particle, the whole association with the God concept. And Hawking himself uh, writes, in order to predict how the universe started off, um, I, th I find that an interesting sentence, you know, how do you predict something that already happened? <laughs> So what we're trying to do is predict something that is already an event that happened. Is that a prediction? or just an Not in the strictest definition no. of the term, no. But anyways, he says, uh, in order to predict how the universe started off, one needs laws um, that stood at the beginning of time. In real time, there are only two possibilities. I found this interesting. Either time continues back to the past forever, or time has a beginning at a singularity. One can think of real time as a line going from the Big Bang to the Big Crunch. But one can also consider another direction of time at right angles to real time. This is called the imaginary direction of time, where there need not be any singularities that form a beginning or an end to a universe. In imaginary time, there would be no singularity at which the laws of science broke down, and no edge of the universe at which one would have to appeal to God. The universe would be neither created nor destroyed. It would just be. I like that. Yeah. Or as some would say, <laughs> the supreme being. Continues Hawking. Maybe imaginary time is really the real time. And that which we call real time is just a figment of our imagination. In real time, the universe has a beginning and an end. But in imaginary time, there are no singularities or boundaries. So what we call imaginary time is really more basic, and what we call real time is just an idea that we invented to help us describe what we think the universe looks like. And final explanation by contributor Jim Hartle. He says it's very important to understand that the word imaginary in imaginary time does not refer to the imagination. It refers to a very ancient idea in mathematics, namely imaginary numbers, such as the square root of minus one. For a given observer, space and time are, of course, distinct. We measure space with rulers, and we measure time with clocks. But space-time is a four-dimensional geometry, which has some space-like directions and some time-like directions. So, in a certain sense, the notions of space and time are still distinct here. This, despite the great power of that idea, it is still possible to go further in unifying these notions. If you measure time directions using imaginary numbers, as opposed to space with real numbers, I assume, then you obtain complete symmetry between space and time, which is, mathematically, a very beautiful and natural idea. 
But one shouldn't think of imaginary time as something to which we have direct access in our experience. It's a mathematical idea which expresses the beauty of the equations of physics. And in this case, a particular proposal for the initial condition of the universe, right? Which I have to ask again, if the universe is eternal and self-contained, how can it have an initial condition? There wouldn't be an, an initial condition. Would well, I think that the Big Bang Theory has been pushed aside of late because of uh, Hawking's idea that there was no singularity per se. Uh, if, if you look at it on a graph, mm -hmm. and if you think of a vertex of a triangle, he doesn't draw a vertex, he draws a sort of a bowl of an in, uh, unde undetermined type of beginning. And this is where the imaginary, the imaginary time uh, resides, if you want to put it that yes. way. It's this un undetermined, maybe that's a, that's, a, that's a good word to use, I think, undetermined um, time and place, not necessarily a point or singularity, but um, I guess if in quantum physics you'd, you'd call it an uncertainty. Mm -hmm. You know, that's always intrigued me. So I think the Big Bang oh, Theory gonna, is more or less we're out. We're going to be talking about that a little later on as well, but you know, these are the kinds of questions that constantly plague me when I read various physicists trying to describe the nature of the universe. And of course, we're not going to have any answers here today. These are all the questions that we are facing and trying to answer through all of this. But of course, there is this overall arching uh, controversy between uh, what was called the God particle for a reason and the role of the greater supreme being in the minds of others, including scientists, which we want to talk about after. This break, which by the way is from the movie Oh God, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Lately. I have, John yeah, a couple Denver times. And um, George Burns was in it, of course, and Terry Garr. And um, very funny movie, and very apropos to many points that it makes throughout. And uh, this is one of them, so we'll be back after this break. Did you just say that you saw him? Yes. You didn't just hear him. One line. That's all I gave it is one line. Jerry, are you seeing now that you saw God? Three times, yeah. Three times. In the bathroom, at, at work, and in the car. One lousy line. I don't believe it. Jerry, let's go away for a couple days, okay? Look, Bobby, I know how crazy this all sounds. No, you don't. Bobby, I saw him. He spoke to me. All right. Let's say for a minute that you saw God. Look, don't humor me. That'll really make me crazy. Okay, okay. You saw him. But why is he talking to you? Well, why not me? Well, why not the Pope or Billy Graham or somebody way up there? Because he doesn't care about religion. Oh, God doesn't care about religion, huh? Well, that's what he said. Well, he sure picked a funny business to go into then, didn't he? Take a few days off and go on a little holiday. A holiday? Yeah. We could go to San Francisco. You haven't even seen your sister's new baby yet. 
You don't want me to see my sister's baby. You want me to see my sister's husband. Now, I am not crazy, and I don't need some child psychiatrist to tell me that I didn't talk to God because I did. On an intercom. And on the car radio. Yes. Yes, Jerry. Jerry, do you remember when Artie Coogan set up that hidden microphone and he broadcast those filthy limericks through the television set? It was not Artie. I know all of Artie's voices. And Artie is not capable of adding ten stories to a building that doesn't have them. And he cannot talk back and forth through a car radio that's been busted for two months. Now, whoever the hell this guy is, he's very smart. And I'm going to listen to him. For a while. And you think it's God? Well, he thinks he's God. And I'm in no position to argue with him. I thought you believed in him. I do. I believe in God. I just don't believe that he exists. <laughs> you know... That's I like John Lennon. God is a concept. Well, you know, that statement, though, I believe in God, I just don't believe he exists. I've heard that in so many forms. Yeah. It's, it, it's not funny in a way. Because, of course, it, it speaks to um, a lack of literalism in terms of how that person might interpret what they think of as God. And um, this is also... I have some interesting comments to kick us off here on this conversation. This is from the Reader's Companion to Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time in which a number of contributors put their two bits in on this subject. And this is contributor John Taylor, who writes, I feel God is very important to many people because of the need to explain both the enormous complexity and the possible lack of purpose in the universe. I would never wish to remove that great, great aid it gives to people throughout this life. Personally, I don't see God as being related to anything in more detail than a possible first cause. But being a pragmatic materialist, I would say that God is to be described in terms of the laws that would determine the first cause. If you ask me, what do you feel as God? I would say, it is the nature of the universe. Quote, end quote. So, I guess just like Terry, Go Terry Gard in Oh God, Taylor believes in God, but not that he exists in that sense, right? It's too zen for me. Is it? Yeah. No, Terry Gar is. Oh, well, her. <laughs> uh, and then writes Roger Penrose from the same compendium. He says, I'm not sure that the word purpose one might use in connection with the universe of the laws of physics is quite the same as the way we use the word in a personal sense, when we intend to do something. This is something John McMurray gets into a lot, intentions and, and purposes. But there is a certain sense in which I would say that the universe has a purpose. It's not just there by chance. Hmm, interesting statement. That would mean he doesn't believe in probabilities. He wouldn't be a gambler then, right? <laughs> Some people take the view that the universe is simply there and it runs along. And we happen by accident to find ourselves in this thing. I don't think that's a very fruitful or helpful way of looking at the universe, end quote. What do you think of those comments, Robert? Um, I would agree with them. I don't think that anything happens by chance. Okay, that's interesting. Chance, chance is a term that is used to help predict the future. That is all, probabilities. It cannot be used to uh, describe the past. Because um, if you're saying that what was the chances that we'd be here today? Well, since we're here, obviously the chances, if you wanted to look at it in those terms, was 100%. Mm -hmm. So it's a meaningless term when using describing the past. So I'd agree with him. I agree. 
And that's something we want to talk about. We'll be talking more about that later in the show because I didn't want to bring up more on that until you've spoken a little on what you'll be talking about after the next break, which is gambling. going to be on gambling. But just before that, I wanted to make a point about you know the whole thing of, of even bringing religion into these issues. And you know, a lot of people seem to forget that religion and politics are so closely tied to each other. And even God concepts and going back into history, it's all a cultural thing. It's part of our knowledge base. And and even the symbolism you see everywhere. You know, if you, if you go to the story of Muhammad, I, I understand it's been said that the star and sickle on the flag of Islam were inspired by the planet Venus in the presence of a crescent moon, which was their relative position in the day when he fought a, a victorious battle, right? And that's how it was picked. I don't know if that's a true story, but that's part of the symbolism of the Islamic flag that I've heard. Same thing with the cross of Christianity, which was chosen for the exact same reason, following a victory in battle. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was Roman, Roman Emperor Constantine or someone in that era. I did, I did all this on the show earlier, in which the cross was the symbol of the flag of the victors, and so that was how it was retained. Different religions, same story. And, 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 you know, I start thinking God as a concept, as a dangerous social concept, having led in history to untold, unnecessary conflicts and torture and death, usually under the hands of some true believer given the power of the state or church. And God is entirely dependent, of course, upon definition. I've heard people say, well, you know, they would argue God is love, as I so often hear said by people in the United Church. You'll hear a lot of them saying that. And I think they've given up on the concept of God and have instead chosen to redefine it. You know, but I have to ask, of course, if, if God is love, and love is understood to be a certain level of caring between individuals, and if, in fact, people stopped or just didn't care about each other, then would God cease to exist too? If love's, you know, you know what I'm saying? The so act- if people cease to exist, yeah. will the uh, well, universe still be here? Well, not from our perspective, well, obviously, but <laughs> yes, I think it would. If God is love and there's no love, then you've got to say there's no God. Or does the concept of love itself cease to exist merely because it's not being practiced? I don't know. These are issues that can only be resolved by epistemology. And the only working definition I've ever played with with God, and I don't use the word except in common language every now and then. We all do. Atheists use it just as frequently as, as believers do. Well, of course, it's part of our vernacular. And, you know, people either give it a mystical application or just take it quite literally. God is a supreme being, period. God is the name we give to existence itself, you know. And it's the only possible definition of God that has any connection to reality, if you look at its history. That's it. It doesn't go any further. The supreme being as opposed to non-being the axiom of existence. Existence exists, you know. That's basically what I think it's about. Anyways, we're getting down to the bottom of the hour now, so let's take a break for a smile as we hear a great example of how politicians can actually create nothing out of something. (laughs) There's a talent for you. From the Yes Prime Minister series, this, I think, answers the question, what do you get if you have a no-policy policy? Is it a policy or is it no policy? And what are you voting for if you vote against a no-policy policy? Are you voting for a policy on no-policies or just for no-policies? Because <laughs> you have to have a little faith when you work with that number zero. Orthodox diplomacy. Uh, uh, the Qumran effect. Uh, this is important. 
Oh, yes, it's just the palace is waiting for your recommendation of the sea of Bury St. Edmunds. Oh. Uh, the two names were in your box last yes. night. Well, I thought Stephen Soames sounded right. Peter said he was best, too. I mean, the Dean of Bailey did a very good job in Combran, but I gather he's rather eccentric. Well, I'm sure that Soames is the choice that the Crown Commissioners are hoping you'll make. Oh? Why, what's wrong with you? <laughs> well, I have heard say that he's an extremist. You mean he believes in God? <laughs> he's very religious, right? Well, that's all right for a bishop, isn't it? <laughs> well, he tends to raise issues that often governments would prefer not to be raised. He's a trenchant critic of abortion, contraception for the under-16s, sex education, pornography, Sunday trading, easy divorce and bad language on television. Oh. <laughs> he would be likely to challenge the government policy on all those subjects. But these are subjects on which the government is hoping to have no policy. <laughs> is not to have a policy. Well, quite. He's against your no-policy policy. policy. <laughs> she would demand that you ban abortion, Sunday trading, contraception yeah. for the under-16. Yes, yeah, thank Sex you, it. Bernard. Yes, I get the picture. And he's also against oppression and persecution in Africa. So are we. Yes, but he's against it when practiced by black governments as well as white ones. Oh, you mean as a racist? <laughs> but you can choose him if you like. <laughs> single time. I must have done it a dozen times by now, and I haven't missed yet. Nobody could be that lucky. It's impossible. Not impossible, just extremely improbable. The improbable? Like the neutrinos on the station spinning the same way. Or a few dozen people having minor accidents at the same instant. Or a system failing just at the wrong time. Exactly. Someone or something on the station is distorting the laws of probability. Changing them so incredibly unlikely things can happen on a regular basis. Well, how can we find out what's causing it? I think I know a way. Ninety-eight percent of the neutrinos in this room are rotating clockwise. The games are open. We're not here to play, Dax. One hundred percent clockwise. It's these machines. Well, my gambling machines? What's wrong with them? Somehow these machines are altering the laws of probability all over the station. So that's what he meant. Who? The alien who gave me the original. He said it all came down to luck. That must be how it works. When you win, it makes you lucky. When you lose... But these machines are affecting everyone on the station, whether they're playing them or not. Impossible. You must be mistaken. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call us at 519-661-3600 to join in our conversation. You can also email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, visit our website at justrightmedia.org, and like us on Facebook from that location. That was an interesting gambling machine that fellow had there. He says, when, when you win, it makes you lucky. Isn't it the other way around? <laughs> Don't you win because you're lucky? Oh, <laughs> I think the luck comes first, oh, doesn't okay. it? Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, you're right. That's one of those things we have to determine before the end of the show. Mm. Mm. There's been a couple of things happening, in, uh, at least in the city of London, that have uh, made me start to think about gambling. And there's two things. I think you may be aware of them, Bob. Councillor Stephen Orser here in the city has called um, 
on his fellow councillors to bring in a new bylaw, which would allow people to have referenda on virtually everything. As long as you get 10,000 signatures on a petition, you can have a referenda on anything. Also, there was a, a recent... That's gambling. <laughs> That's, yeah, gambling <laughs> with other people's lives. Yeah. That's what that is, but I'll get into that. Also, there's been another survey, um, this one by uh, Kim Ainsley, who was our guest last week on the show, and uh, Nordex Research on um, gambling and casinos in the city. And they've got me thinking, you know, there's one recurring issue that demonstrates quite clearly, in my mind, at least the tendency for some people to, to want to control the actions of others, and that is gambling. Another one might be, for example, pot smoking, but gambling is up there as one of the issues that keeps coming back and back. It falls into the vice department, right? Yeah, exactly, yes. Just like smoking, drinking, all those things. Um, it's legal in Ontario, but under um, strict state regulation or under its own monopoly, of course. And I looked into uh, the background of the laws regarding gambling here, and just very briefly, the restrictions on gambling actually stem from a federal criminal law which permits only the federal government, provincial governments, certain charitable uh, and religious organizations, and agricultural fairs to be able to hold gambling activities. Also, permits can be given out by the province to allow others to partake as well at their discretion. Now, like many laws which attempt to restrict peaceful, voluntary behavior, gambling legislation in this country is obviously, in my mind, a violation of a person's liberty and their property. There is absolutely no moral basis for gambling laws. Recent polls in this city have asked questions regarding certain behaviors of the province when it comes to gambling, now euphemistically called, by the way, gaming, with the outcomes continually being misinterpreted by various political factions as the populace's opinion on the broader topic of gambling. And you've heard this. As a matter of fact, I went back recently to listen to one of your older episodes of Left, Right, and Center with uh, Jeff Schlemmer. And no, this one was with Susan Eagle, yeah. Reverend Su Susan Eagle of the United Church, and Jim Chapman, who was replaced in this show by Eddie, I forget his last name. But in any yeah. case, yeah, the show was on gambling, and it was back in 1999, I believe. Mm -hmm. And the issue has not gone away. I think. 98, yeah, hasn't gone away. And at that time, they did a survey as well, where most people apparently did not want to prove gambling. When that was not the question. It wasn't the question, do you approve of gambling? It was, should the government be doing this? Should the government be doing that? To the yes. exclusion of this group. And people said, no, overwhelmingly. And so you get people like Reverend Susan Eagle saying, see, people don't want gambling. Mm -hmm. Wrong. No. If asked the hypothetical question, do you support the government's plan to build a casino in London, that typically a large percentage, perhaps even a majority, will say no. The actual reason for saying no can often be left to guesswork, and that's exactly where Susan Eagle came in, guessing. If that question was asked of myself, I'd say no, even though I have no objection to a casino or a hundred casinos being built in this city. My objection would be the government running such a casino, and you have to be very careful about the questions you ask in such surveys. Now, skewed, skewed poll analyses aside, we have to ask the real question. Does the government have a role to play in the gambling business? And if so, what is it? And the question can't be answered by a poll, a vote, a plebiscite, or a referendum. It can only be answered based on an understanding of the proper function of government, the proper role of government in society. And of business. And of business. You could say, too. Yeah, yeah, you could say, because gambling, in my estimation, is a business, yeah. and a legitimate one, should be legitimate. If you ask people if gambling should be allowed 
and they vote no, then you're asking for mob rule. If you can ask that question, then why not ask the question, should homosexual be, uh, homosexuality be outlawed? If a majority answer yes, you can see what's wrong with this question. There's some things you don't ask questions about. Well, sure. Asking should should gambling be outlawed is very different from asking should gambling be outlawed next door to you in the parking lot beside your house. Exactly. Right? That's a legitimate that question. that is a legitimate question. That's right, because it affects your right. property values directly. Now, a majority can't vote on your personal behavior unless it violates somebody else's life, liberty, or property. The example you just gave, building a, a casino next to your house. Gambling, per se, does not violate anybody's life, liberty, or property. It's a peaceful behavior. Now, there may be definite problems associated with gambling, with money you can't afford to lose, but these problems are of an individual nature. They don't involve anybody else. If a middle-class woman, just a hypothetical situation here, a middle-class woman gambles away her entire life savings, leaving her and her family so poor that they have to move out of their home, Everything they own is repossessed, and they have to rely on charity for their survival. Then this is a problem for her and her husband and their children. It's not a criminal issue. It's not an issue which directly affects anyone but her and her family. Now, some might say that since they may have to seek government assistance, it's yeah, everyone's I was issue. I just about to open my mouth and say yeah. exactly that. This is, you're playing devil's advocate, right. Yeah. Um, because they may have to seek government assistance. It's everybody's issue. So we should all take an import in this decision. But this is a non sequitur since, I would argue, that the state shouldn't be handing out so-called assistance to anyone anyway. That's like saying, because we have state-run medicine, the government can tell you not to eat fatty foods. Which is what they're doing. Because yeah, of, oh, because yes. they've, ta- they've usurped that right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Look at um, the mayor of New York City outlying uh, was a two-liter diet pop or two-liter pop because it's bad for you, and we pay for your health care out of Medicaid and Medicare. The pop police. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, personally, I believe it's stupid of somebody like this person, this hypothetical person, to waste her money. Um, but it was hers to waste. If she wasted somebody else's money. For example, stole money to feed her gambling habit, then now you have a crime, a proper crime. It's not the gambling, it's the theft that's the crime in that situation. And I'd call the woman immoral for wasting her money and throwing her family into poverty. But poverty shouldn't be a crime, nor stupidity, nor immorality. There's nothing inherently immoral in gambling whether it's a friendly bet with a friend on who's going to win the playoffs or whether the Higgs boson exists or putting $10,000 down on a single roll of a die. And yet you, you called what she said immoral, so obviously it's not the gambling that's immoral. Nope. What was the immorality? The immorality was her wasting of her wealth. Yes. That was without, immoral. In your example, without seeing to her fundamental responsibilities. Right. She took on responsibilities by having a family. She wasted her wealth, which would have been providing for that family. So, therefore, that was an immoral act. But that's not against law, nor should it be. That was a decision she made with her money. And she's free to make that decision as, as immoral and as stupid as it is. But now, you, you, some would argue, again, there are consequences to others besides her. That's true, and those people have to deal with that person directly. It's not a crime. We shouldn't be involved. No, I understand that point, yeah. yeah. As long as the money was hers, nobody's harmed if you lose. Your wallet may take a beating, but nobody's life, liberty, or property has been mistreated. 
There should be nothing illegal about such actions. There's nothing inherently immoral in gambling. Unless you lose money, you really can't afford to lose. But laws should not be based on what's moral, only on the protection of life, liberty, and property of others. We don't make, make, you know, make laws based on morality. People sometimes confuse this. Oh, but we have laws against killing someone, and killing is immoral. Yes, it is. However, we don't have the law against killing because it's immoral. We have the law against killing because it violates a person's life. Correct. Now, there's nothing... Um, but this brings up the role of government. As with any enterprise, it's a proper role of government to protect against fraud. And in this sense, there's nothing improper with the government making sure that, for example, the dice aren't loaded, the bingo balls aren't weighted down, the roulette table isn't rigged, or the horses aren't doped. This, I think, is a proper function of government in gambling. In the same sense yeah, that... To it, be a referee, not a player in the exactly. game, as they may say. You know, we already have examples of this. Uh, for, some, for example, if you go to your butcher, his scale has been calibrated by a government agency to make sure that he's not cheating you. A pound is a pound on his scale, just as yeah. it is with the weights and measure that standards. That was one of the very first functions of even the Roman government and the yep. Roman Empire was to affix specific weight to gold and to coins mm -hmm. so that they, you know, you knew what it was worth. Now, this should be the extent of the government's involvement in the gaming business, just that, to prevent fraud. Such businesses should be treated with the same impartiality and objectivity as any other business, with the government ensuring only that any question of fraud is properly dealt with. It's not society's role to regulate a person's behavior if that behavior is peaceful. Now, on the issue of whether or not a government can or should raise revenue using lotteries, gaming, or gambling, I'd say no. What would you say, Bob? Can the government raise money off of lotteries? Hmm. I wouldn't have any problem if the lottery was self-financing and self, you know, not on the market. Who ran it? Who owns it? Hmm. Um, I'd, I'd say no. It would still have to be in a private market environment, That's, if you know what I mean. Yes, you know, you know I do, and you're exactly thinking the way I was. Yeah. I'd say no, but reservedly. I say reservedly because it's far lesser use of force than an income tax, for example. But it's still an improper function of government to compete in a legitimate sphere of business. That's the thing, yeah. Should the They're government be in any, other in any other business, you're correct. Right. They're competing with what I consider to be a legitimate business, as I just advocated. Remember, they're be. making money off of all those businesses anyway. Don't they tax them? <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, think, I think that's another question. Yeah. Now, if it does choose to interfere in the gambling market to raise funds, we can choose not to participate, and there's where choice comes in. So, yeah, that's why I say reservedly. Um, it's not my burning issue to stop government from raising funds via lotteries, etc. I'd rather get rid of the income tax first. The lobby groups now most opposed to gambling are typically who? For example, Reverend Susan Eagle of the United Church. These are even evangelical type of churches. And I limit it to the evangelical type of churches as the more established, as opposed to the more established Catholic Church, which has, of course, a long history of bingo halls and holding fairs with games of chance. So they're not opposed to gambling per se. Now, also, besides the you churches, know, you have... Else. Sorry, something yeah. I found with people who will support gambling despite their, quote, principles against it, usually they support it when they know that the funds from the gambling go to some altruistic <laughs> yes. um, cause. Yes. And then all of a sudden, gambling is, is manna from heaven, 
right? That's exactly but in right. Any other, in any other circumstance, if it's for personal gain or anything like that, well, then it's evil. And not only that, it's to the, the degree that they oppose as well. Like, they're not mm-hmm. going to say that, oh, you shouldn't outlaw Lotto 649, because what is it? It's only a dollar. Or is it $2 now? I don't know, because I don't buy the tickets. But, you know, it, it's only a small amount, and it goes to the government, and they give it to charity or sport or whatever, right? But um, if you all of a sudden said, well, I want to run a business based on horse racing, it says, oh, no, no, that's evil. That's evil because you're going to make what? Profit. A profit. Right. And profit to these people is evil inherently, and that's where we come to what I consider the real root of the problem, and that is the conservative Mentality, the small C conservative, not necessarily large C, but the small C conservative value, which seems to delight in making others conform and regulating the behavior of their neighbors to fit their standards and their norms, which usually their standards and norms don't involve profit. So, once again, we find that the conservative-minded use force to act as a protector, not to act as a protector of individual rights, but as a usurper of individual rights. Now, any politician, and here we're going back to Steve Orser, any politician who asks the government to run on a referenda, polls and surveys, is abrogating his responsibility to act as an elected official. Indeed, if the people vote for a particularly bad law, a politician can, after the law has been shown to have been drastically bad consequences, turn around and say, well, I didn't vote for that, the people did. So where's your accountability then? It's gone, it's Mm -hmm. in the ether. It's gone into the Higgs field. (laughs) (laughs) That oily field there that slows things down. That's right. (laughs) The people's attitude toward gaming establishment is not a valid parameter upon which to base a law governing such establishments. Just as the opinion of the mob should be disregarded on such matters as private sexual behavior, smoking, drinking, pornography, or any other personal behavior or personal vice, which harms no one but the person who engages in those behaviors, it shouldn't be done on gambling. And we're going to cut for a break right now. And when we come back, Bob, you're going to have a few potpourri bits about... Well, I'm going to actually tie together what you've just talked about oh, gambling okay. with what we were talking about earlier. Um, believe it or not, the whole um, God particle and uh, beginning of time and probabilities and things like that. It's amazing how it all fits together. Maybe that's why we like gambling. Maybe it's part of our nature <laughs> to gamble. Yes. Yeah. I wonder. We'll check it out. <laughs> Once? Is there any way I can blame this on you? I don't think so. No, I suppose not. All right, pay them all off. Damn! Something wrong, Major? My turn just self-destructed. What? I lost an evaluation report I've been working on for weeks. Even the backups? Even the backups. Funny. I've been hearing a lot of bad luck stories in the last few hours. Dr. Bashir tells me the infirmary is full of minor accidents. People slipping and falling, walking to turbolift doors before they open, that kind of thing. Well, I've had a great day, so don't try sending your misfortunes my way. Come on. You make your own luck. We all know that. Well, there you go, all about luck. You, you know, Robert, after listening to you talk about the gambling and, and hearing you know, about probabilities and luck and, and all those things, 
I started thinking, does luck really exist or is that just a figment of our imagination, speaking of imaginary things? Because if you ever think about it, luck comes in, what, two forms, right? Good and both bad. Both sounds and both off. <laughs> <laughs> no, but good and bad. You, know, you talk about good luck or bad luck, sure, right? Sure, yeah. So if that's the case, the only thing that isn't luck is something that's indifferent or something maybe you don't care about or, or think about normally, right? So, mm. so then, you know, so, and that's interesting too. And also when something is certain, there's no luck involved in its contemplation. Um, yet certainty is what most people seem to seek in both science and in religion. They want that sense of certainty because that was the problem with discovering the, the, um, the God particle. Are they absolutely certain that this is the right particle? You know what I mean? And, they, and they're up at 99.99999%, but there's always that possibility that it's not the right one. And, and I think this penchant for certainty in the human animal yields a certain level of predictability. I was thinking about this. And, you know, we, you always hear the statement after someone's been in an accident, well, that accident was preventable. <laughs> we can prevent accidents. You know? Or if there's or a tornado and, and somebody's destroyed their house, and but they survive, they might say what? God well, saved us. that could be, yes. <laughs> but, you know, but in, in terms of a preventable accident, I think in reality, no accident is or ever was preventable. For if it had been prevented, there wouldn't have been any accident to be prevented. It's part of that sure. law of causality, yeah. right? You can't go back and say, well, X was preventable. You might think about preventing... Future other, accidents of no, the same kind. Of the same kind, but how do you know when you did if they didn't happen? <laughs> right. Right? It, it, it's, it comes down to that fundamental contradiction, just like the number zero, like, like existence itself. You can't deal with contradictions. They set your mind into this loop. And, you know, governments and religions alike are kind of a bit obsessed with preventing and mitigating unlucky and bad consequences, which is why... Maybe some people are opposed to gambling. If the guy loses and we have to bail, we're going to have to bail him out, right? Mm -hmm. And so that that I understand. And, uh, you know, and, and even of actions whose natural consequences according to the law of causality should yield bad consequences. And, of course, you want the religious certainty of eternal life, you know, afterlife and that kind of thing. So... No chance of that, though. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking... <laughs> Well, it's either certain or it isn't. Uh, so I got this again. This is from, again, from the Reader's Companion to Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. And this is from contributor Jim Hartle, who wrote, Anyone over the age of 12 knows that there's no such thing as certainty in this world, right? And therefore, physics has to deal in probabilities. It was a vision of classical physics that we dealt in probabilities because of ignorance. That is that we simply didn't have sufficiently refined and accurate descriptions of the world, but that when we found the description that we would have certainty. Now, for some 60 years, and this is, this is quite controversial, I know, we've known that this vision is false. Probabilities are fundamental. Uncertainty is inevitable. And therefore, a quantum mechanical theory of anything, the universe in particular, doesn't predict one particular time history of the universe. Rather, it predicts probabilities for various possibilities that might have happened, which basically outlines the whole plot line of many a Star Trek episode we've seen. Eh? There's something about that description that has always, I don't know, irked me in a way. And then mm -hmm. when they talk about the words probability, uncertainty, and all that, I think what a lot of people, even physicists, I think, 
are misusing the terms because those terms apply to a human mind trying to understand the future. A human mind is one of the rare things in this universe which can actually which actually knows that there is a future and that there is time and can experience it. And so we're talking about a human concept here. And are I don't think just? the I don't think the universe per se, including ourselves in it, really cares if you want to use that no, word no, no, about I know what you mean, but probabilities again, and certainties. And I don't that. I don't think that's what they mean in that sense. I think they mean like if they're watching the wave particle theory, there's a probability of how many particles will go and slit one and slit mm-hmm. two, and that's mm-hmm. a fact. That's yes. a measurement. That's not an expectation. Although we learned after a while that it always seems to work out in accordance to certain proportions, but. Um, Interesting. This whole it all comes from from the law of causality, cause and effect. And I thought we might close off the show with this observation from Leonard Peikoff, who um, who wrote that you know cause and effect is the universal law of reality. And this is interesting where people get off track when they talk about something causing something. He says the law of causality is the law of identity applied to action. Okay, so all actions are caused by entities. That's a very important thing to distinguish. The law of causality does not state that every entity has a cause. (laughs) Yes, yes, very big distinction. Huge distinction. An entity may be said to have a cause only if it is the kind of entity that is non eternal, because all entities are eternal, essentially, but not the form, right? Yes. But the entity. And then what one actually explains causally is a process. The fact of it's coming into being or another thing's passing away, that's that's what it is, right? Action is the crux of the law of cause and effect. It is action that is caused by entities. But since the Renaissance, it has been common for philosophers to speak as though actions directly cause other actions, bypassing entities altogether. This idea is senseless. Motions do not act, they are actions. It is entities which act and which cause, which is the same thing you were kind of getting at with the human mind being the, the, the thing that drives it. Mm-hmm. To be is to be something, and to be something is to act accordingly. Natural law is not a feature superimposed by some agency on an otherwise chaotic world. There is no possibility of such chaos, nor is there any possibility of a chance event, if chance means an exception to causality. Uh-huh, I like right? that. Very good. Cause and effect is part of the fabric of reality as such. One may no more ask who is responsible for natural law, which amounts to asking who caused causality, right? <laughs> then one may ask who created the universe. The answer to both questions is the same. Existence exists. Good one, eh? Yeah. Now, before we go, Bob, I do have a, a bit of an announcement to make because yes. our Euro correspondent, Paul Lambert from Sweden, um, has his own radio yes. show. And it is called VSI Radio International. And the first show was last night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And it will be uh, a regular feature every week, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern. And it's broadcast on shortwave at 7.490 megahertz from WBCQ broadcasting out of Monticello, Maine. And if you don't have a shortwave receiver or if reception is poor, you can go to your uh, to the station stream at splatterbox.us colon 7415 slash listen.pls to pick up Paul Lambert's new show, VSI Radio International. I caught a bit of it last night and... Um, 
actually quite good if you think that uh, Bob and I are uh, on the right track. <laughs> um, Paul Lambert is as well, and I think that'll be another um, show that you'd want to tune into. Okay, Something to check out. And I guess we have to check out for today's show. Join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Will that be all, Prime Minister? I have a dinner engagement. I suppose so. Prime Minister? Uh, Prime Minister, it's time for you to get ready for the reception here this evening. No, who's coming? Oh, uh, representatives from the Synod of the Church of England. There's a vacancy in the Diocese of Bury St Edmunds. They always want to come here when there's an important bishopric vacant. Why? We're to lobby. They have to submit two names to you and they're anxious you don't choose the wrong one. How should I know which one to choose? Well, it's like any civil service option, Prime Minister. It'll be a conjuring trick. <laughs> you know, take any card. You always end up with the card the magician forced you to take. Suppose I don't take it. You will. <laughs> Who are these clerical cards I'm supposed to choose? Well, with the church, you usually get the choice of a knave or a queen. 